Let's go ahead and pray together. Lord, this morning, uh, we trust you as the one who holds everything together. You're holding us together, your church. You're holding together each and individual saint that is here in this room, regardless of their circumstance. They're here, Lord. And today, you desire to speak to each and one of us, each and every one of us through your word. And so, Lord, we ask that nothing more or less than your word would go forth this morning. Lord, let us see what it means to know Jesus Christ and to be found in him. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, before I get started here, I have a question to ask. Um, I have already seen my office and I've seen the uh, work that has been done in it for Pastor Appreciation uh, Month. And so if you are a kiddo who has been in my office at some point this morning, would you raise your hand? Mostly over there. Okay, over there as well. Great. Guys, thank you so much for that. Appreciate that. As a pastor, you know that that's a thing that happens, Pastor Appreciation Month, but you have no idea what's actually going to happen. So thank you for the candy. It will be eaten within the next 48 hours, and I'm very appreciative of that. Uh, Philippians 3, 1 through 11 is where we're at this morning. Let's go ahead and turn there, and uh, let's get to work as we see what God has for us in his word. Um, before I became a Christian in high school, I was a, a junior when the Lord found me. I, I noticed that the sermons I would listen to didn't really stir my heart with a passion. And being in, in church and hearing a lot of sermons, you could kind of develop a knack to figure out what the pastor was going to say before he said it. One of the reasons why, maybe someone will convince me of doing this at some point, uh, but one of the reasons why I don't have fill in the blanks on uh, your, your, your handout is because for me, I'd only be playing the game of trying to figure out what is the fill in the blank instead of actually paying attention to what the pastor was saying. And so maybe you've done that as well. And so you could kind of predict the words that would be used, love, joy, grace, Jesus, something said about Jesus, something said about the cross. And for me, it was just really easy to tune out hearing sermons on Sunday. And the pastor, you should know, was a really good guy, did a really good job preaching. But something happened, though, that when the Lord finally got a hold of me, I found myself all of a sudden paying attention. <laughs> I found myself um, all of a sudden excited to hear things that I had known before, but now because they were true realities in my life, it, it stirred me up with excitement. The Spirit was changing in me to value the things that God values the most. When you've heard, I think, certain spiritual truths or any truths that have just wrecked your life in just the best possible way, it's no trouble to hear them again. Because truths that have transformed your life, they don't get old, right? They don't get old. You, you love hearing the same realities that are yours today as they were yesterday and will be yours tomorrow. This morning, we're looking at a famous passage in Philippians 3. Maybe you've heard this line out of uh, Philippians 3, uh, uh, 2 through uh, two seven, uh, or verse 7 and 8, pardon me. It says, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, that should be familiar but it should still stir your heart with a passion. 
Um, one author who I was reading that was commentating on this passage said this, Paul is saying these things, that I, want, that I desire to know Jesus more after 30 years of being a Christian. His heart is still stirred with a passion. And so my hope for every single one of us is that as we look to maybe some of us the next 30 years of life, if the Lord uh, decides to give that to us, as we look towards the future, that we would say, Lord, would you keep that fire alive of desiring to know you more and more? And maybe for some of us here this morning who, if we're honest, there's some indifference towards Jesus, that he would rekindle that fire. And we could say the words of John Wesley, when the Lord got a hold of his life, that his heart was, I love this description, his heart was strangely warmed, that you would have that reality in your life as well, to rekindle that passion of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. So let's go ahead and dive in. Let's look at verse 1. 3 one begins and it says this, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and it is safe for you. So as we have taken time and we've gone through the first two chapters of Philippians, everything I think you'll see as we go forward should almost feel like we're going downhill, like we're moving quickly towards the end of the, the letter. But he says, finally, and that should, well, that should strike you odd a little bit though because in my Bible, he still has two chapters left. So is he like a pastor who can't land the plane and he says just one more thing and you know he's gonna go on for another 20 minutes and you go, would you just hurry up and finish so we could all go have lunch at La Hacienda after this? Can we just hurry up the process? Or maybe like me, this is something I discovered probably in my first few sermons after about preaching two-thirds of the way through the sermon, I was done saying what I had to say from the major part of the text. And so I closed my Bible. And, and I noticed something happened when I did that. People started to shuffle around because for them, that was the telltale sign that the pastor was going to give the benediction and uh, give the altar call. We would sing Kumbaya and go home. And I had given that signal and everyone was getting ready to go. So what's actually happening here when he says finally? I think... Probably a, a better word uh, that from the Greek would be furthermore. And so he says, I have more to say. You can easily imagine a scenario where Paul in prison writes chapter one and two, takes a pause and then goes, ah, there's more to say. And so this is what he gives to us. He begins by saying, rejoice. This is the second of four times that he's going to do this. And so he does this in 2.18. We saw this a couple weeks ago. He does this in 4.4. You've heard this before, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. He does it twice there. And so a guy who, if I can remind you again, is underneath house arrest, he is the one saying rejoice. Joy does not mean the absence of sorrow, but the capacity to rejoice in the midst of it. The reason he can call others to joy and he can have joy himself is because his foundation is in knowing Christ Jesus and nobody can take that away from him. And so he calls people to rejoice. And then he gives, he gives several statements. His statement to write the same things to you is no trouble for me and it is safe for you. Sets them up for the teaching that we're gonna have and what we're gonna look at this morning. And I think if you could kind of put it in one kind of, kind of kernel statement, it would be this, that, that you should never think that your privileges or your achievements make you right before a holy God. And so this is what he says in verse two. Look with me. 
Two through six is what we're going to look at for the next few moments. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, Paul says. Verse five, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. And so he gives us this big statement, these big meaty statements, and he begins by saying, your privileges and your achievements don't make you right with God. And so he says, I want you to watch out for a specific group of people. We call them the Judaizers. You may have heard of them. We're not talking about specifically just Jewish people who held to their Old Testament or what they would call the Tanakh. We're talking about people who said, to be a good Christian, you need to submit to the Mosaic law, including the practice of male circumcision. More on that in a moment. And Paul says, you need to watch out for these people because they're adding to the grace of Jesus by saying that you need to, to fulfill the works of the law. Paul takes on the offensive and he just gives them a straight up beat down. And he gives three words. He says, they are dogs, evildoers, and they mutilate the flesh. Let, let, me, let me show you what I mean by this beat down here. These people who think they can justify themselves before God by their Jewish nationality and by their good works. Dogs, that first word. Now, if you're a, if you're a dog owner, you're going to dislike everything I'm about to say here, so just uh, buckle up. So if you, if you look at the ancient world, dogs, you didn't have them in your home. They weren't the family pet. Uh, dogs were scavengers, low lives, and they were considered to be unclean uh, by the Jews. And so if I were to take someone from Philippi in the first century, bring them to Huron, South Dakota in the 21st century, and they were to see that, that we take our animals to the vet, uh, that we give them names, we feed them, we hug them, we love them, we bring them into our families, we bring them into our air-conditioned homes, all of these things, we put clothes on Fido, they would look at us and go, what are you doing? That is ridiculous. And, and I should tell you this, the last time I walked through this passage, I was really going in and about, you know, how much the ancient world looked down on, on dogs. And sure enough, at the back of the room, there was a girl who had her therapy dog with her. And I went, give me a break. Just, I just can't win here. And so dogs, it's not seemed to be the same way. And so for Jews, they would look at those outside of their community and they would say, you're unclean. You're a dog is what they would say. And what Paul's doing is he's turning it on its, on its head and he's saying, you're the dog. You're the unclean one. You are outside of the covenant community. Ouch, right? He goes further. He says, they're evildoers. And there's a deep irony here because they were saying, by doing these things, you're going to be righteous. And Paul's saying, actually, by doing those things that you say we're supposed to do, we know we're supposed to trust in the grace of Jesus you're actually doing the work of the devil. You're being an evildoer. You mutilate the flesh, that last one. This is my favorite. 
Um, he says, <laughs> he says they mutilate the flesh according to the Old Testament. By the way, if you're if you just showed up within the last few weeks and you're not a Christian and you're hearing us talk about circumcision, I want to acknowledge, even though the rest of us have heard about circumcision before, this is kind of weird to be talking about it openly in this way. But here's why it's important: because in the Old Testament. If you were a boy born into Israelite society, you were circumcised by the eighth day to demonstrate that you were set apart for the covenant community, uh, covenant community people of God. But now that Jesus has come, we have the New Testament, we have the New Covenant, and in the New Covenant, you no longer hold on to those ceremonial laws like uh, what kind of food you're supposed to eat, whether you should be circumcised, practice of the Sabbath. Jesus has fulfilled the law in his person. And so Paul says something brutal to these people, these people who disregard what Jesus has done. He says, these people call themselves the circumcision, they should call themselves instead the mutilation is what he says. And so there's a play on words here in the Greek. And there's one word he says, peritome. That's the true circumcision. That means literally to cut around. Mom and dad, you can explain that to your kids afterwards. And there's another word that he then says. He says, katome. And that means to cut to pieces. And so he is just shredding these guys up. And he's saying, this is the kind of people who depend on themselves. This is what they are. You go, why the, why the visceral response, right? Why, why, would he, why would he do all of this? He doesn't want us to put confidence in our own flesh. And he says, here's what the true circumcision looks like. There's three things that you can look at. I'll just list them off to us. The true circumcision are people who worship by the Spirit of God, the people who glorify Jesus Christ, and they, and they are true Christians don't put their trust in the flesh. Let's so go with that first word there and follow me here. Worship by the Spirit of God, true, the true circumcision, the true people of God, Jews and Gentiles together. Paul elsewhere says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And we're circumcised as a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. Colossians 2.11, that was Romans 2, Colossians 2.11 says, In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so in the Old Testament, if circumcision was that sign that separated you and brought you into the people of God, in the New Testament, spiritual circumcision is when you receive the spirit of regeneration who sets you apart from your old life that you used to have, transforms you. Good word he uses to say you're born again. He regenerates you into new life in Jesus Christ. And so isn't this something that we've been saying over and over the last several weeks that if you are someone who is truly a Christian, who is working out your salvation with fear and trembling, it is God who works in you but to will and to work according to his good purpose. How? Through the work of the spirit of his son in you. And so take hope, friend. If you are worshiping by the spirit of Jesus, you're the kind of person who says, I may sin and fall down, but I have the strength of the spirit of God in me who gives me the ability to get back up again. Reminder, reminder, you have the spirit in you. So worship in your life as if you had him because it's true. Second, we glorify Jesus Christ. The true, true circumcision glorifies Jesus Christ. 
I was challenged this week with this thought as I was meeting with different people. And I thought, how would they describe Aaron? Like, would they say Aaron is the kind of person who boasts in Jesus Christ? Or am I the kind of person when people talk to me, um, they're hearing more about my problems, my concerns, how busy I am? If we say out of that overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, what am I revealing that's in my heart by what I initially talk about when someone says, how are you doing? Is it natural for me to have that knee-jerk reaction that goes, let me tell you about Jesus? Can you say the same thing about yourself? Do people know you for being someone who just won't stop talking about him? Reminder, Christians should be known for not boasting in themselves, but for boasting in Jesus. You notice, before we go on to the next thing, there's three words that are so important here. He says, we worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. You will miss this, I think, in your devotional reading if you don't take time to stop and notice. There's that pattern over and over and over again in Scripture of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What makes us different? What makes us different than the world's religions? Whether it's Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Mormonism, and yes, Judaism. What makes us different? We believe in one God, one being, one God, in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Look in your New Testament, and you will see, just trust me on this, go, go look at your Bible sometime and notice, you'll see that formula over and over and over again, who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I point this out for this reason. I remember I was um, in a uh, theology class, it was probably about five or six years ago, and I had a question from my theology professor, and it was this. I said, so how do we work this out? Do, do Christians and those who adhere to Judaism, do we worship the same God? Like we both have the same Old Testament, right? And so we both, we, we both believe in the God of the Old Testament. But then you have the rejection of Jesus in the New Testament. So how do we work that out? Do Christians and those who adhere to Judaism, uh, do they worship the same God? And I'll never forget his answer. His answer was, they did believe in the same God as us, Old Testament, but they don't believe in the same God because they reject Jesus, but they will believe in the same God when Jesus returns. They did, they don't, but they will when Christ returns. And so the key comes down to this, do you glorify Jesus as Lord? This is what the true circumcision is all about. And then the last one here, true, uh, true, true Christians don't put their trust in the flesh. We are saved by faith in Christ and not by our works. That goes without saying. That's what we've been saying. But then Paul, what he does is he adds on to this and he says, if you think you could put trust in the flesh, man, if anybody ever could, I can play that game, okay? And so he says, watch my own credentials. And he goes and tells them about his credentials. He gives seven of them. And I'll just list them off. We don't have time to go into them, but really the first part of them are all about his privileges of being born as a Jew, and the rest are about his own achievements as a religious person. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Like if there was anyone who was ever gonna have an impeccable record, it was gonna be this guy, right? You couldn't think of anybody better, right? He had all of the right credentials. His religious accomplishments are flawless. As to the law, a Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
This guy wasn't just a practicing Jew. He was a Pharisee who studied underneath like the Gamaliel. So if you ever talk to a PhD student and, they, and you go, what are you studying? More often than not, you'll hear them say, I'm going to this university, I'm studying this thing, and such and such is my, my doctoral supervisor. And what they're doing is they're telling you, yeah, I get to study underneath this guy. Paul studied underneath Gamaliel himself. Big deal. And so he was not like some Christian leaders today who like to fake their credentials and really have no more credentials than Dr. Seuss. This was a guy who really, really knew his stuff, had really dived into his Torah. He was zealous as he was persecuting the early church, and he thought he was doing it for God. Max Lucado, I like the way he puts this. He says, Paul had blood on his hands and religious diplomas on his wall. Isn't that a way to characterize it? And he conformed to that law flawlessly from man's perspective. He had it all. Rituals, the right ethnicity, the right rank, tradition. He was a great rule keeper, zealous, and obedient. If you were going to put your confidence in anybody, you would put it in Paul. But he says this. But whatever gain I had, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Friends, what we're about to look at right now is what one, one scholar, Moises Silva, says, the essence of Pauline theology. And it all comes down to this one statement, that we would know Christ Jesus as Lord. And so this second part, really, if you could sum it up, is to all about knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul says his former life was nothing, absolutely nothing. If there was ever a time you were going to be a King James-only kind of person, oh, I love this. The King James puts it this way. He says, I do count them but dung that I may win Christ in describing his former accomplishments. And I could use stronger words here, but I won't hear from the front, but I would be accurate according to Scripture. Paul says everything that he had achieved was nothing. Isaiah 64, 6, you probably have heard this, maybe you haven't, says this, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. No one is righteous, not even one. Our good works before God are filthy rags. And you go, why does Paul say this? Why does Paul want to jettison all of his old life for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord? And I would answer to you, and I would say, the same reason my son August um, wants to throw away his dinner and wants to eat Beth Duba's um, awesome dessert that she gave us, brownies, last night, because he sees that that tastes so much better than to have his dinner. Same reason. He has something better in front of him. Same reason the, the merchant who sees the pearl of great price sells everything he has, and he, and he buys that pearl so that he could have it. When you come to know Christ Jesus, your Lord, you realize there's nothing else to treasure besides him. When you know Christ Jesus as Lord, when you think of heaven, you no longer think of it as merely a mansion that you'll get to have in streets of gold, but as the place where you're gonna get the, you're gonna get to hold on to Jesus. Like, I can't express to you how much I cannot wait to no longer be a sinner. I cannot wait to no longer have to go, Lord, I repent for doing that thing again. But I get to hold on to my Savior and go, 
it's over, and I'm with him once and for all. It's just the beginning for those of us who know Jesus. Are you the kind of person that can say after 15 years or even more than that, I'm just beginning to get to know him? I say that with my wife. I'm just beginning to get to know her after eight years. How much more my Savior? When you come to know Jesus, and not just the facts about him like many church people do, when you completely get to know him, everything else pales in comparison, and you just want Christ alone. Can you say that? Can every single one of us say that this morning, that Jesus truly is enough? He truly is enough in your life? Well, let me give you some spiritual wealth, some blessings that you have. If you're not sure if Jesus is enough, that hopefully you'll be able to say yes to that question by the end. Verse 8, Paul says this. Here are the blessings that we get. And, and let me say this before I read. There's three words we can sum up here of what he's going to say. That in Christ we get justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Paul says this. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Justification, sanctification, Glorification. Let me, let me unpack those words for us. That first word, justification. That means to be placed in right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul had seen that his own good works, his own righteousness did not compare with the righteousness of God. He needed the righteousness of another. He needed the righteousness of God. So here's how this works. You and I, and I've said this before, but it's worth saying again, you and I were dead in our sin and there was nothing that we could do by our own actions to make us right before a holy God. And that is why he has sent his son to die on the cross in our place, taking the judgment that we deserve, bearing the wrath that we deserve, overcoming death, sin, and the devil for us when we couldn't. And so we don't do the work, Jesus does the work. And he does this by bearing everything for us so that we would get what he deserves. It's not by faith, friends. You get this. It is not by faith that we are Christians. Sorry, it's not by works. It is by faith in Christ alone. And so that joyous exchange where he takes your guilt and you take on his righteousness. Martin Luther described this in a really helpful way. And he said, it's kind of like this. You take a cloak and you put it over you. And so you take that cloak of righteousness that's Jesus and you take all of his benefits that are yours. And so when the father looks at you, he does not see you and your fallenness, you and your sin. He sees his son and his righteousness. And here is what we have, the wonderful doctrine of imputation, that in Christ alone, I receive his own righteousness as my own. We get the righteousness we don't deserve. And so, friend, man, you can't make yourself right with God through your own achievements. You know how many people I have sat down with? Have you ever gotten the opportunity to sit down with someone and present the gospel to them? You're usually going to hear this statement when you ask them. Is there anything in your life 
when you look at it, that would keep you from heaven? Do you think you would deserve to go to heaven if you were to stand in front of Peter at the pearly gates? By the way, that's not in scripture, but if you were to stand at the pearly gates and go, should I be able to go to heaven? What would you say? Could I be able to go into heaven? And I have talked to so many people and they usually will say something like this. Well, I haven't committed murder. So, and I always go, as if like not committing murder is a standard, like that's the bar to get into the pearly gates. That never has made sense to me. But the more I think about it, it actually does because we are so good at comparing ourselves to others. Like, I'm better than Ted Bundy, so like I deserve to get into heaven, and he surely doesn't deserve to get into heaven, right? Like, like surely I haven't done those things. I'm better than that person. And we think that by comparing ourselves to others, that's going to justify us before God. We need Christ. We need his righteousness and not our own, not our achievements. We need him by placing our faith in him. And so if this seems to you to be like a high lofty truth, and it doesn't seem to make sense how this could actually apply to our real lives, let me show you how this applies for the church legalist and for the progressive theorist on the other. Let's do the church legalist first. If your Christianity is consumed by only ever thinking about what not to do or what to do, and it's a list of rules, if you find yourself only thinking of hair-splitting talk about how, how you're better than that other person, oh, well, I don't do that, man. Man, they do, I'm thinking of specific examples. I'm holding back here, so work with me here. So you're the kind of person that is thinking, If I do these things, then I'm going to be right before God. The doctrine of justification looks at you this morning, and it says stop thinking of your faith in terms of rules to follow and more in terms of resting in the relationship that you have with Christ. When I climb up a mountain, I'm not thinking about how close I can get to the ledge. I'm thinking about how close I can hug the mountain. When I'm following Jesus in the Christian life, I'm not thinking about how close can I get to the rules, you know, breaking the rules without actually breaking them. I'm thinking about how I can take up my cross, and follow after him. And there's an irony that happens here. When you're not so concerned about do this right thing or don't, or, or don't do this and the list of rules, and you're concerned more about following Jesus, you actually fulfill those things by following after what is most important. It's relationship over dead religion, friend. Okay? And then you have the other person here, the progressive theorist. And I say that because it rhymes, but to be honest, you don't have to be progressive to fit into this category. You can be conservative or anything else. This is the person, let's do this. This is the person who, because of the latest fad of whatever is most current, that's the most current standard of morality in our culture, wants to be the most virtuous. They're thinking about how can I be more virtuous in comparison to others, whether it has to do with sexual ethics or whether it has to do with with political um, ethics or, or anything else. They're going, how can I be more moral? You might fit into this category if you're prone to wanting to cancel others because they don't line up to your bar of what you think is right and wrong. It's your own self-justification project to compare yourself to others. And so here's what I would want to say to you, friend. If that's you, if you find yourself, if you find yourself always fighting online with others to prove that you're right and more moral than others, Jesus looks at you this morning and says, you don't have to find your approval any longer in what other people think of you or what other people say about you and how virtuous you may be. You can find your approval instead in turning to Christ and seeing that you already have the approval of your Father over you because you have put on Christ. He justifies you. He justifies you. And so we come in right standing by holding on to that reality of Christ through faith in him.
There's another word, though. It's sanctification. And sanctification says this, verse 10, coming from this, is that through Christ we have his death, sufferings, and resurrection. We're becoming more like him in these things. If justification is that moment, okay, if justification is that moment where we believe in Christ and put on Christ, sanctification is that process where we go throughout the Christian life becoming more and more like Jesus. And so the means that God accomplishes that process of sanctification, please don't miss it here, friend. It's not just the power of his resurrection. You cannot sidestep the power that comes through suffering. You can't skip over hardship just to get to the resurrection bit. They go together. And so in this Christian life, it is guaranteed that you're going to have hardship. I would ask you, if you have fallen prey to what we would call the prosperity gospel that says, believe in Jesus and you'll have health and wealth and all will be well. Man, that doesn't work for Paul. That's not his situation. His situation is bad, and yet he still calls for joy. And Paul is the one who calls us to not skip hardship, but to step into the sufferings and identify with Christ. Christianity is not about deliverance from suffering. It is about deliverance through suffering. And so if that is true for you today, you find yourself in suffering, you find yourself in hardship, ask this, God, what do you want to show me in the midst of this? I do not desire to be here, but while I am, what do you want to show me, Lord? I've been thinking about this reality of God working in the midst of suffering as I've been thinking about my own prayer life this week. I've been drinking from uh, the Puritans, and I mentioned Richard Sibbs last week, and I want to mention him again. And I've been thinking about what he says about the concept of prayer in the midst of hardship and suffering. And you should know this, that pastors aren't immune from having difficulty in prayer, uh, like we're human as well. Uh, Pastors have to work on praying just as much as everybody else. And so as I've been thinking about that, I thought about his words. As I'm prone to distraction, as I'm prone to what I would call in my own version, bad prayers. Like like I knew a guy who said uh, to a friend of mine after he prayed, he goes, friend, that wasn't your your best prayer. And I just think, I have many of those. This is what Richard Sibbs says to those who are struggling in prayer, confused prayer as they grow as Christians. He says, God can pick sense out of a confused prayer. You hear that? God can pick sense out of a confused prayer. These desires cry louder in his ears ears than your sins. Sometimes a Christian has such confused thoughts that he can say nothing but as a child cries, oh, Father, oh, Father, and not be able to express actually what he needs like Moses at the Red Sea. These stirrings of spirit touch the heart of God and melt him into compassion toward us when they come from the spirit of adoption. Friend, in your hardship the one who has clothed clothed you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ can take your confused prayer, your distracted prayer, your prayer that goes, man, that wasn't good enough, and he can still use it. And so even if you are like the thief on the cross that says, says, help, you can't even get any other words out. It's not because of the strength of your prayers or how articulate you are in your own suffering, but it is because of the object of your faith, the one who hears it, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. He hears it, he answers it, and his heart is moved towards every single one of us who calls the name of Jesus. It's a powerful thing. You have glorification, this is the last one. 
and is our hope of final resurrection in Christ. Paul says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul may be uncertain about his circumstances and how this is all going to play out. Am I gonna have resurrection right now in the next five minutes? Will I die and then I'm gonna have resurrection? How is that gonna work out? I don't know, says Paul. But Paul says, I know that death doesn't have the final word. Death doesn't have the final word. Who cares about my own achievements? I have the achievements of my, my older brother Jesus by way of the Father and the Spirit, and his achievements mean that I get to have eternal life, the life to come. And so Jesus, the one who has become poor so that we would become rich, in his own actions of being God and then becoming God in the flesh, incarnate, and then coming down and dying in the crucifixion, and then being resurrected to new life, and then being exalted because of what he has done for us. If we put our faith in him, we will receive these true realities, these blessings in him of justification, sanctification, and glorification. So my friends, I would ask this morning, would you rejoice in the Lord? Because when you do rejoice in the Lord, you will see that these treasures and blessings are yours if you have Christ Jesus, your Lord. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, .org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Hero. Have a blessed day.